You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. John McMurray is the founder and director of the Northwest School of Theology and the Open Table Conferences. He is also the author of the very wonderful book, A Spiritual Evolution, which I highly recommend. For more than a decade, John served as an adjunct professor of Bible literature at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. He has also taught Bible theology and photography for various schools and organizations internationally. John is also a landscape nature photographer who uses a large format camera and still shoots film. His images have appeared in Sierra Club, National Geographic, Audubon, and several other prestigious nature publications. He is the author and illustrator of By Chance and The Call of Creation. John also co-authored a book with best-selling writer Donald Miller entitled To Own a Dragon, now under the title Father Fiction. John is married to Terry, and they have three incredible children. They make their home just outside of Portland, Oregon. Welcome, John McMurray, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. Well, I really enjoyed your book. When I was reading it, it reminded me of Augustine's Confessions. (laughs) Because the way it's organized is really through a series of confessions. And I found that, I really found that very moving because I think one of the things that's hardest if you've been in ministry for any period of time is to look back and some of the most painful memories that I have when I taught something, somebody something that I now feel like did not really represent who God really is. Mm-hmm. And what's well, a hard thing to feel like you misrepresented God to somebody. Yeah, uh, for sure. But, you know, we're all on this journey and few people that I have run across are as willing to speak confessionally about their journey as you are, especially someone who has taught professionally, because it's quite a blow to your pride and your ego to confess that you taught something for a long time and you now see it differently. Uh, so I found, your, I found your book to be very personal and authentic, and I felt like I was just following somebody honestly into a journey where they kept discovering the depth of God's love more and more and more. So I found the book very moving. I read it in a day, and so I encourage everybody to read it. But what I, I want to start out just by leading you, not through all of the confessions, just some of the ones that stood out to me. Confession number one, I did not think of justice as a relational quality. A couple things, Dave. Um, one, I didn't start out intending to write a book. It was really more just kind of, I, and I'm not a big journal person, but I felt like I needed to really uh, start to write some things down. And it just so happened that I had a window of opportunity. I was, I was photographing and I had bad weather for several days in a row and I had mm-hmm. no, had no internet, no TV, nothing. So I started writing and it was uh, more cathartic 
And that's why you see the confessions. It was more like, oh my gosh, I realize I thought this, or I believe this, or I taught this. Um, and that's really kind of how it started. Um, so I'm glad that, that that element still kind of shines through the book um, because it, it, does. Very mu- it very much was that for me. As far as the, the justice thing, yeah, that, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But essentially, I had thought of justice as an abstract quality of someone's character, of an individual. Mm-hmm. And but if God is if God is Trinity, if God is relationship, he doesn't possess it as a quality, he is it, then justice is primarily understood as a description of the way in which persons relate. It's how they treat one another. It's not an abstract quality of an individual. And just even that one thing just started to send me on a different trajectory, a different path. And how I thought about God, and that—that's part of my own history. Justice was a big deal to me. Uh, well, it should be a part of, of your big history because one another one of your confessions is, "I was a Pharisee." Yeah. Well. Well, and I think, I think that was just uh, kind of looking at the way my life had ended up through all of my education, and then my service in. Christian organizations or schools and the things that I believed and taught and the way that I acted uh, and the arrogance um, that accompanied it. And it wasn't, it wasn't in your face arrogance, but it was an arrogance of I'm right and you're not. So it just kind of like, yeah, that's just kind of the way it is. And if I didn't feel this way, then I would change my opinion. So all of that was, uh, I think just one day it dawned on me. It's like, John, you're, you're exactly like you read the Pharisees are in the Bible. What's the difference? And there wasn't any, that was a revelatory moment for me, Dave. (laughs) Well, you, you, you also said, you know, in your answer that you, you mentioned something about justice being, you hadn't really thought of it is being relational or Trinitarian. And that leads me to the next confession, which was I had completely ignored the Trinity. Yeah. And I find that one really pretty common among, among my tribe. Um, you know, my, my, the people of my religious upbringing and background, we, we believe the Trinity. We confess it as what they would say as a fundamental of the faith that it's, they would even actually say it's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from other world religions. Mm-hmm. We believe in a God who is relational, three persons, and yet one being. And yet, I, in all of my life, I can't ever remember praying to anything remotely like a being who exists in three persons. I only thought of God as an individual. Only ever thought of God as an individual. So... On one hand, I'm confessing that I believe God is relationship, but on the other, in the terms of my everyday life, moment to moment, it doesn't even register on, on the radar. And I've met a lot of people oh. from my tribe that, that feel that way. Well, the, the next revelation is, <laughs> I confess, the God of my imagination had replaced Jesus as the revelation of God. Yeah. And I think that's what happens over time. You, you know, you... 
you what ends up happening for me was instead of thinking of my relationship with God as marrying a being, a person, I married an ideology. And so the ideology became more important than the person, the belief system. The next confession, entering a contract with God held more promise than a relationship with him. Yeah. Um, That's two things quick I'll say about that. One, that comes out of a lot of uh, exposure and reading to T.F. Torrance and his brother, J.B. Torrance. Especially J.B. talked a lot about contract versus covenant. The other thing was that um, confession is in uh, one of the chapters where I talk about relationship. And the point for me was contracts were easier, Dave, because they were simple, like yes, no things. Like, mm-hmm. do you believe this? Yes. Okay, you're in. It's like you sign on the dotted line, all everything's good, and I get to go. That's easy, right? I don't have to give it any more thought. It's like I have my ticket. So. Well, I thought I thought I I talked with somebody one time, and they said that what happened is they, whether they thought about it this way or not, they they were in kind of a transactional or contractual relationship with God, and yeah. that they felt really good when they were going to church and they were doing their Bible study and they were doing all these things. But then what would happen is that I don't know they'd fall off or they'd get they'd run out of steam or something, and then they would start to feel that they were somehow below contract level, below transaction level. And then so they would panic and they would try to work to get back above uh, to where they felt like they were fulfilling the contract or the transaction. But then they would fall down. And she said she was on a roller coaster with that that perceived contractual uh, transactional relationship with God. And it finally just exhausted her spiritually. There, there's really nowhere else to go because in a contract, it's all based in performance. And so when I fail, I feel like I have not held up my end of the contract. And now I'm worried that God won't hold up his. So now I work harder. I try to perform better. And it's just, you know, it's the little wheel in the, in the hamster cage. You just keep running in the same way over and over and over again. And uh, so I know exactly what she's saying. I've, I've been there for sure. Another confession is, I confess, I believe God's goal or purpose in punishing us was primarily punitive. Yeah. And that's, that's simply because I took my notions and definitions of what I thought justice was, and I painted them on to God. So he thought of justice like I did. He was just bigger. The next confession is, I taught Randy about a God who did things no good parent would ever do. Yeah. Um, one quick thing back to the justice thing. Justice is a big deal in terms of when we're thinking about the character or nature of God. But if we define it, here, here's what I was getting at, David. I don't, I don't mean to ramble. I've never read a definition of justice that didn't include the word punishment. And that's what I was driving at in that last confession. I don't think punishment has anything to do with justice. I'm not saying it can't be a part of it, but I don't think it has anything really to do with it. The second well, part uh, about Randy. Well, hold on, hold on. That that, yeah. that reminded me of, that reminded me of something. Let me switch into Texas mode a little bit because okay. uh, I grew up I grew up in Texas. Let me put my cowboy hat on. Okay. Now let me tell you what, John. 
when people transgress the law too much, you just got to hang them because that's what the justice of the law requires. And here in Texas, we hang people. We kill them because that's what justice requires. It's the long arm of the law, John. You know, I mean, that's 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 kind of what I grew up with. Yeah. And it was in the culture and the, the Christians when I was growing up, when I heard them talk, their God sounded exactly like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was sort of God with the cowboy hat. Yeah. And yeah. who executed justice on the world. And they told me if I wanted to get out from underneath the justice of this God who was going to execute it with wrath and fury upon all people who had not accepted his son, that I better do it and I better do it now or his justice was going to be raining down on me yeah. forever. <laughs> so, so I'm telling you to enter into the most wonderful relationship that exists. And the, re- the way I'm motivating you is with the scariest, most fearful thing you could ever imagine. Yes, that's why I was so terrified that, that when I was growing up, I, I was pretty sure that that whenever I would go back past a church, I would shudder mm. because it was the scariest place I knew. Let's go back to the question, the, the confession about Randy. I taught Randy about a God who did things no good parent would ever do. Yeah, and that that's uh, that's one of those pivotal points for me um, when I became a parent. Uh, over a period of time, and it didn't take very long, but I began to realize that the way that I felt and treated my my child, my firstborn, because at that point we just had the one, was very different than the way my theology had taught me that God treats his children. I was treating my child better than God. My theology taught me that God treated us. And I said, mm-hmm. that just that just can't be. I'm not a better I'm not a better person than God. Right. So something's wrong with my theology. It's not what I'm doing with my child is not wrong. I love my child. And I know that God is not wrong. So there has to be something wrong with the way I'm I'm seeing this. So that was a that was a big catalyst for me to start looking. And another confession. I grew up with this narrative. Yeah. That's what I was taught. That was what I was taught and not, I wasn't taught it as a narrative, Dave. I was taught it as the truth. This is the truth. And any deviation from it is really risky because it means you could, you could become, you know, an apostate or a heretic and lose your salvation kind of thing. So yeah, it was a pretty big deal. Well, that's what I think of. I think people generally are trying to make sense out of the world in which they are given. Hmm. And, you know, uh, so I have come to think of people who are, you know, don't think this way or whatever, that they're just doing the best they can with the theology that they, you know, they inherited. What's interesting to me about you is that you were able to, you were able to transcend that. The next confession, the cross became so central to me that it virtually eclipsed who died on it. Yeah. If, if you're, and again, this would be my journey. I was so committed to the transaction paradigm that the person who did this was literally overshadowed by the large largeness of the event. So it was really the event that saved me, not the person. That's how far I'd moved. 
I confess, today I have taken my place alongside the Nicene fathers in declaring that Jesus is God in the flesh. Yeah, that's that's a tricky one in this sense, because I had confessed that in the tradition that I grew up with. But the truth was, again, kind of like the Trinity thing. I believed it, but I didn't really believe it. Or let me say this, at least understand some of the implications of it. So I had Jesus being at times equal to God, at other times less than God, you know, couldn't figure it out back and forth, more like a ping pong ball in a lottery machine. Well, and so the Nicene fathers helped you with that. Absolutely. And there were other, uh, other more modern writers that helped me with the Nicene fathers. Athanasius, C.S. Lewis's introduction to Athanasius, Torrance, T.F. Torrance's book, uh, The Trinitarian Faith, which is basically an exposition of the Nicene Creed, John, Spare, John Bear's book, uh, he has a couple on the Nicene Way. Those would be some of the more modern writers that helped me with what the Nicene Fathers were trying to get at, I believe. Yeah, it's really it's been really interesting to me to really investigate the Nicene Fathers because I, when I eventually did find my way into Christianity, it was in the uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ Church and. And it was neat because they basically said each person needs to study the Bible and come to their own best understandings. And so there's a lot of freedom there. But there wasn't the attention played, paid to the early church fathers, hmm. in, just somehow in that tradition. And just for me, they didn't tell me I couldn't go there. It just wasn't talked about a lot. Right. But, when I finally, but when I finally found all of that and realized the depth of the, their interpretation and understanding and the beauty of what they were thinking about. It was really very spiritually enlivening for me. Mm-hmm. You have um, some quotes I'd like to reflect on. I'd like to hear you further reflect on in the book. And this, this quote comes in underneath the subheading, some, many, most, all. You write, interestingly, I have never met a student of the Bible who doesn't believe that Adam's fall was passed on to everyone. Just ask them if they believe everyone has sinned. If the fall of the human race is universal in Adam, and by this I mean through one man, all humanity inherits Adam's status as a sinful person, then what is true of the human race in Jesus, the incarnate Word of God? How much greater is humanity's union with Jesus than with Adam? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? In As far as my journey and the way that I, I look at this, Dave, that would probably be one of two texts that were catalysts for me to begin shifting in the way I looked at it. My understanding of the whole basis of Paul's reasoning in Romans 5 is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a formal logical argument. And I think he does a great job with it. But his lesser to the greater is not Jesus to Adam. It's Adam to Jesus. And again, in my, in my upbringing, in my tribe, you would never, never find anybody that would say that there's a human being that has not sinned. That they they right. would say that the fall of Adam was universal in every way imaginable. Okay? Well, it turns out that universal, universal is a good word when it comes yes. to sin. Exactly. Exactly. 
So it's an, it's an apropos word for them. But when you turn around and apply it to the saving work of Jesus, they back away from it. And it's like you're literally doing the opposite of Paul's argument. His whole reasoning is saying, if the lesser is true, then the greater must be true. And they acknowledge the lesser to be true. But then when they come to the greater, they back away. And I just find that fascinating. And I found it fascinating in my own heart that I was doing the same thing. It's what I've been taught. Mm -hmm. And that honestly, if you're going to be honest with the text, you can't do that. You just can't. Not if you're going to be honest with it. So, and I'm not saying you have to agree with Paul, but you have to at least acknowledge what his argument really is. So that was a, that was a big deal to me. I think that's a pretty strong reason to change views. The next quote I'd like to read from your book is, Jesus' union with us is far more than a physical embrace. It is ontological. He unites himself to the deepest, darkest places of our being, and he embraces us there. This is the way to the healing of our souls. I refer to T.F. Torrance once again. In the profound interaction between the incarnation and atonement in Jesus, the blessed exchange it involved between the divine human life of Jesus and mankind has the effect of finalizing and sealing the ontological relations between every man and Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and I, I believe that TF is expounding on Gregory. I forget which one, uh, Nanzianzen or Nisa, which I don't remember. But uh, his point of what is not assumed is not healed. So if Jesus does not unite himself to the whole human being, the darkness and the light, then it, whatever he doesn't unite himself to is unhealed. So he has to unite himself to all of us, to all, all of what it means to be human. And that's what I was referring to in the previous quote. We talk about our union with Adam, and we feel like that our union with Adam being a physical one by birth is stronger than our union with our creator who has united himself to us by creation, not just by birth. Mm -hmm. And then he unites himself to us even further. Or what I think TF is getting at is he finalizes that and makes it inseparable in the cross and resurrection. Yeah. When you, when you first get that, that's really powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. All right. I'd like to move on to some, just some questions that I thought of that I'd like to ask you. The first one, sure. if we have been included in the Trinitarian redemption of humanity through no effort of our own, is it possible that by our effort, we will finally be able to escape God's salvation and be lost to God forever? Yeah. I, I'm going to nuance that just a tad because I'm, I don't think it's a question of effort. And the reason I I'm going to nuance it away from effort because when I use a word like that, it, and as you mentioned, with those, my Christian brothers and sisters, they're immediately going to assign whatever I'm talking about. They're going to jump to this person is saying, I'm saved by grace plus works. So I'm just going to drop that for a second and say, well, I don't think, I don't think it's effort, but I'm saved by nothing that I've done but I do have to receive it to experience it. And even that experience, I need, to, I need, I think, to be more clear with that. I have to receive it 
to the ex let me put it this way, to the extent that I receive it on an ongoing basis every day is to the extent that I experience my salvation. Because I can choose to not walk in the light as he is in the light this moment, the next moment. And that doesn't mean I'm not saved in the biblical term. It means I'm not walking in the light. I'm not experiencing that salvation. So I agree with the statement, Dave. I just shy, I would shy away from the word effort because I don't want people to think that I'm trying to add works to something that I'm not. That's all. Yeah, I've, I've put a lot of thought into that. I, I kind of think that there is an energy or a creative uh, direction that's part of what I think of as my imago dei. And I'm not a tabla rasa. I'm not a blank slate. I'm a child. Yep. And children want to go home. But there's so many things. They can believe lies about themselves and they can believe lies about their parents. But once those, once those lies are all displaced and I see myself for who I am and I see my parent for who my parent is and that's all good and all wonderful, then there's an energy there already. I'm not having to work. There's already, I'm already moving. You know, I'd, I'd have to go, <laughs> I'd have to go against it. Anyway, once I began to think about that, it just, you know, it was kind of like the parable of the prodigal son. There was an energy moving him back home. Mm -hmm. And when he woke up to that and realized it, and then when he got home, it was a far more beautiful reunion than he could have possibly ever imagined. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, kind of like in human terms, you know, if, if God is your father, and I believe you and I both believe he is, then you've inherited his DNA. That's that energy that you don't, I don't know what it is, but something about me has the DNA of divineness, of deity, right? I'm in his image. I'm the Imago Dei. All right. What about human free will? Is it fair for God to make a creation in which God knows in advance that God will finally be all in all? Doesn't that, that make God a monster? Are we all doomed to salvation whether we want it or not? I think that kind of depends on how you define what it means for God to be all in all. It, it almost sounds like every, everyone in our particularity disappears. We just all merge into one thing. And that's, I don't think that's what it means at all. I, I think God will be all in all in that without us losing our particularity. Uh, and I, I look at that because I see that in God himself. I see the father and son being distinct persons, and yet they're all in all. One of the things about growing up in America is that we're the land of the free. And so liberty seems like, you know, don't tread on me. You can't tell me what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And so for God to somehow make a decision in advance for our, even for our well-being seems like a violation mm. in, in, you know, in this, in this setting. And for a long time that, that bothered me. But once I finally sort of worked my way through it, and I realized that, wait a second, I've been given a gift. I'm a child. I'm a child of this God. And everything, the best things that are in me are all gifts that I've been given. And so when I finally come to that realization, it's just my desire to say thank you and to, I mean, the most exciting thing I can think of is to be in the direct presence of the one who has loved me into existence and everything else. Right. And so, you know, I get chill bumps just thinking about getting to be somehow directly 
in in a way that I I, I haven't I've, I've I've had little experience I've had some experiences of it in this life and the ones that I've had have been so transcendent that I can't even imagine what it would be like to be fully immersed in that reality with with others knowing that that reality is continuing to grow and enfold all of us you know that's just such a powerful vision that it it, it it's really exciting for me yeah and it will and it will continue forever and ever right age after age yeah i can't remember which of the church fathers it was but it talked about it being an ongoing it's not a static like oh well we got there well i guess we finally explored all the goodness of god there's nothing to do anymore it's yeah. something somehow a continually evolving journey and dave i all think right. I th hold on but, but i think just real quickly to highlight what i think is a really really important point that you just said and that is you're thinking about all of this not from the starting point of some abstract power out there somewhere that has laid down a rule that says this is what's going to happen and you have no choice in it you're talking mm -hmm. about a father who loves his child with a love that's beyond your comprehension, saying, I'm not laying down a rule. I'm saying, this is what I know is best for you because I made you and I love you and I'm helping to bring you to it. What a difference, right? I know. Yeah. So what a difference. Okay. Uh, to the best of your understanding, what is the telos of creation? What do you believe will be the full realization of that which was purposed by God from the beginning? Well, we, you've used the phrase, God will be all in all. And that's described, I think, uh, a couple different ways. Um, one of the ways would be that we're, we're changed into the image of Christ. We become like him. And that seems to be part of what it means that God will be all in all. And on, on a, again, on a very basic level, if I were to think of any person that I would want to be like or emulate, I think I probably have to say Jesus is the first one that that's who, who I'd want to be like. And I know a bunch of people that don't even follow Jesus that would say the same thing, which is to me, it's fascinating. So I would say for me, Dave, the telos or the end is that God is bringing us from what he imagined in the beginning, um, before the foundation of the world, before he created it. And He's bringing us to the place where we will be all brought up into one head, even Christ as his body. And then he turns and gives that to the father and says, father's all in all. That's kind of, I'm hearing the recapitulation from Irenaeus yeah. there. Yeah. That, that the, and I think that's really beautiful. And I, I learned uh, from studying with John Bear that Origen uh, and Laura Ramelli showed me this too, that Origen thought of the telos of creation that 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 God understood what that telos was from the beginning, and then God is the God of the aeons who brings the aeons, the ages into existence for the realization of the telos over time. And time is important because it's that thing that keeps everything from happening all at once. Hmm. So through the, all of the ages, then progress. Finally, then at the end of the ages, God is finally all in all. That's not the end of the of the time of time, like we're used to thinking of time as a straight line going out into eternity because you think, okay, well, at the end of the ages, then time is over. No, at the end of the ages, God is all in all. And then we all exist in that reality, which is supra temporal from which the ages descended. Then we're with God in the all in all. And I don't know exactly how to describe that, 
But to me, it releases me from that linear timeline thinking, and it helps me to understand that God is not the creator of just our, of the physical world, but of time itself, of the, a, of, of the aeons and all of that. And that, that has really helped me to understand that, that, that God is atemporal to our temporality, but can enter into the ages. And that's what happens in the incarnation. Mm. So those are, those are some, those are some big, those are some big thoughts. Yeah, one of the are. things, one of the things that I thought you handled really well in your, in your book is about who is a child of God. And, you know, there's several passages where I mean, Jesus encourages us to call God our Father. Paul speaks beautifully of the fatherhood of God. When Paul is in Athens and he's addressing the pagans in Athens, he says, as you know, we're all God's children, and he speaks very beautifully about that. But then there, there is a passage in the beginning of John's gospel where it seems like to become a child of God, you have to believe and to receive, which makes it seem conditional trans- or transactional. Mm-hmm. And I thought you did a good job kind of working through that because central to, the, to this discussion is who is and who is not a child of God and how you answer that question, you know, has a lot of ramifications. So could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, there's, there's kind of two things there, it seems to me. And let me say this, I, Dave, I start with, and I didn't always, I think I, I think for most of my life, my starting assumption was that as a human being, I'm separated from God and God is not my father. And Ephesians 4 addressed that God is my father. He's the father of all, in all, over all, etc. Um, oh, yes. I get chill yeah. bumps every time yeah, I, I hear that and, one. I, and I don't know how many times I read that and missed it. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I seriously, I don't know how many times I read that and missed it. And then one day there it was and I went, oh my gosh. But that's my, that's my starting point. So when I think about you know, some of the texts that sound like it's transactional, like you mentioned John 1. There's there's two two points there that I was getting at. One, does this does my believing change something about the nature of God? Or does my believing change something about the nature of me? Or does my believing change something about the activity of God? Or does it change something about my activity? So to the first question, if I say that believing changes the nature of God toward me from one of my judge, my creator and judge, to one now he's my father, I've mm-hmm. said that I've done something that can change the nature of God. Well, that's impossible. So either God has always been father or he isn't, but I can't make him father by what I do. But that's what I was taught. You can make God your father by believing. Well, I, I don't believe I can do that. Does it change my nature if I believe? No, it's just a belief. It doesn't change my nature. But what I think John 1, 12 is saying is that I'm believing something about my nature. The word believe there, uh, or excuse me, to receive, to have authority, is the word for authority. And it just comes from two prefixes, basically saying, like when they talked about Jesus speaking as one that has authority, they used this word because they were saying he spoke consistently with who he was. He wasn't a hypocrite. He spoke out of the truth of his being. Well, the, the word for that is your usia. That's your being. So, you know, we're familiar with that word from homo usia, the Nicene Creed. 
that just means the same as homo and being. So authority, the word that's, re- that's translated in John 1.12, that when I believe Jesus, I have authority. That is, out of my the truth of my being comes this understanding through faith that I'm a child of God. So that's what I think is going on there. I'm not changing anything about my nature or God's nature, but I'm certainly changing my activity and my understanding of what that means in my behavior and in my life. I'm acknowledging the truth of what's true. As before, I was living in resistance to it or rebellion or ignorance or whatever it may be to Mm -hmm. it. I remember when I discovered that in Hebrew, bar means son. Mm -hmm. So Barnabas is son of encouragement. And so that's the way they would, in Hebrew, they wouldn't say Barnabas, oh, look, he's such an encouraging person. They would say he's a son of encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know, to be a son of is to be uh, sharing the usia of. Yep. Okay, so if I am a, and in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about loving our enemies. In so doing, we are being sons of the Heavenly Father who does the same. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we become we're becoming sons of what that means is that that who we are resonating with who God is. And we are becoming sons we're becoming in this way it's we're becoming godly. We we are being we are acting in a godly manner because we are acting out of the same essence of God. Yeah. And the so way that, I think you- I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, anyway, so just thinking thinking that way helped me to understand it better. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I you've heard probably Paul Young say it this way. It's uh, the way of our being is starting to be reflect the truth of our being. There you go. Right? So yeah. I'm, and that's what I meant when I was talking about who I am and the way I act catching up to who I am, so to speak. That's growing. Well, I attended the uh, Open Table Conference online version last weekend. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, one of the things that was really interesting to me is that I, I grew up in the, you know, I'm mainline Protestant, but I was basically I always grew up around other other Protestants. It was all I was always mostly around evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Well, since I've gotten in this conversation about universal reconciliation, it's moved me into conversation with the Orthodox, people with Orthodox backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And people in Orthodox backgrounds have a whole different appreciation of Mary. Then, I mean, w- when I grew up, even though I wasn't, I was, I was, I wouldn't say I was hard Protestant, but one thing that differentiated me was that I would never think about, you know, elevating Mary too high because that's mm-hmm. what Catholics, that's what Catholics did. And so I just didn't think about, you know, I didn't think about Mary too much. And I really enjoyed, there were several reflections about Mary in the last uh, Open Table conference. So now my mind is filled with reflections about Mary. So let me, uh, let me run this Mary reflection by you and just okay. see, see what you think. So we talked a lot about Mary in the last Open, uh, open Table conference. And if the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, And if there is light and no darkness at all in the Holy Spirit, 
Then that means in the midst of the darkness of this world, Mary gives birth to the light in whom there is no darkness at all. And if Christ is, as it says in Colossians, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation in whom all things were created, then in a sense, Mary gives birth in a way to the creation itself. And if part of creation is hell, then Mary gives birth to whatever hell there is in creation. And for the life of me, I just can't see how Mary would have been asked by the Trinitarian God of love to give birth to a hell of either eternal torment or of ultimate annihilation. And I was wondering if I could get your response to that. <laughs> You're just wondering that. Um, gosh, that's great. First of all, I, I come from a background, probably not denominationally, but certainly very similar where I didn't <laughs> give a lot of thought to Mary. So Hearing, hearing the sessions um, and the conversations about Mary this weekend was really wonderful for me. It was enlarging. It was enlightening. It was, it was good. So I, I'm, in this, I'm in the same boat, Dave. As far as what you're saying, I, I, I was smiling as you were reading your question, your reflection, because I wanted to say, welcome to the mystery of Christ. <laughs> like, like, the creator of the universe is given birth by a human being. So she actually participates in the birth of the creator and of all creation. How do I get my mind around that? I don't, I can't, and I'm fine to sit with it as mystery. Um, but I acknowledge that it's true that while, because I acknowledge that, the baby that she bears is fully God and fully man simultaneously in one person. So if I acknowledge that, that has to be happening. And I can't understand it, but that's what's happening. And it's well incredibly humbling, incredibly just stunning. Like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? So Well, first of all, I'm just kind of proud of myself for being able to think in terms of Mary that deeply because I hadn't been doing that before, before the conference. So I just kind of enjoy, yeah. enjoying thinking of that. But the, <laughs> the thing that got me going was I'm just imagining being Mary looking at some, you know, writhing pit of people in eternal torment and looking mm. at the father, son, and spirit and say, you brought that into existence through me. Yeah. Or, or some type of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, some type of eternal grave where a soul is lost forever. And Mary saying, you, you brought this into creation knowing that this was going to happen and you bore it through me. Yeah. You know, just imagining what if I had been the vehicle through which this all came into existence. I could only bear that if I knew that everything that had come through me had been a blessing to other people and I would feel terrible if something came through me that ultimately was a trap or, or, or a sealed place of doom that I knew that I had, that, that somehow had come through me, it would, it would make me feel unclean mm. is how it would make me is how it would. And I had never had, I, that was the first time in my life I ever think I ever thought I was sitting around trying to ask myself how Mary would feel about it. Mm. So anyway, that was a question so you never thought of before. Yeah, I never thought of it in that way. So I want to thank you for just bringing, uh, you know, just 
bringing that to mind. There's so many. You have. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Open Table Conference and the time we have left. Uh, uh, before you, before we go there, just real quick yeah. before you segue into that, Dave. Just one thought about that because that came out of uh, a point that I was trying to make that you you and I have talked a little bit about. You've brought it up several times, even in our correspondence, and that was fundamental for me. And this is one of the reasons I think I I love uh, David Bentley Hart's book so much. Fundamental for me to this whole discussion is the goodness of God. That's the question. And the scripture, I think, is very clear here. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. At all. So if I can imagine something that I know is dark, I know is wrong, this can't come from the heart and mind of God. It can't. That's been that's been told to me. So what what whatever I do with it, that mm-hmm. is not where it comes from. I've got to I've got to find some other way to to figure this out or reconcile it. And I just think a lot of a lot of my friends have not thought this through. They just haven't because they they affirm the goodness of God, and yet they mm-hmm. affirm that this same being is perfectly fine torturing somebody for age upon age without end. That that doesn't bother him or anybody else at all. And I'm like, ah, no, that doesn't work. That just doesn't work. It's interesting. You can't really see it. It's like you can't really see it until you see it. But once then you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And uh, I like the way that Douglas Campbell talks about it as a, as revelation. And sort of to me, what happens is, you don't really think your way to this. You contemplate, you're contemplating it. And finally you receive the revelation. God in some way tells you I'm better than that. It's an encounter. Yeah. It's an, it's an encounter that you have. So, so in a way you sort of reason or contemplate yourself to the point of revelation and then you reason yourself away, away from it, trying to figure it out and make sense of what did I just, encounter and how do i now see things differently yeah it's encounter with a being who's better than the words you read about him well this open table conference is really interesting tell me a little bit about how it got started where you are uh, right now you know what your future plans are how can people engage with it i know i looked online and you have a lot of the past talks tell me tell us a little bit about the open table conference and where it's been and where it is now and where it's headed? Well, it, we started the first one, uh, started putting it together in 2012. So 10 years ago, the idea, Dave, was, um, I, again, in in my tribe growing up, there were questions and some of them we've brought up here, uh, like the question you just asked me about Mary you would never have been allowed to ask that question in my environment. You know, that just would have been like, no, you, you, no, before you even got the whole thing out, you would have, you would have been, you know, politely quieted said, you know, take that somewhere else. So first of all, the idea was to be able to have a conference where we could say to people genuinely, no question is off limits. We want to have a conversation. We're not saying that we have all the answers but we certainly want to journey with you to find an answer because we have found that God will meet us. And when he does, you will find that he's better than you thought he was. So 
that's why we're excited about having a conversation with people. So the idea of an open table is it truly is open. Anybody is welcome here. Everybody's welcome here. You have a seat here. That doesn't mean we're all going to agree, but we're all going to talk. And we're, we're going to hopefully talk that helps all of us bring, bring all of us to a greater understanding of love of the God who made us and has saved us. So that's, that's really kind of the idea. And we wanted to expose people to this so that they could begin to have a conversation. Because in our culture, and you know this, you've experienced it, you've seen it, just like I have. Uh, people are leaving the church. I'm going to say that in some kind of nebulous way, but they're mm-hmm. leaving like crazy. But there's a lot of people that are not leaving a belief in God or even a desire to know God or a belief in Jesus. And so they're kind of in limbo. And we just felt like, okay, can we provide an environment, a place of safety where these kind of people could come and talk and be engaged in a conversation that hopefully will help lead them to a renewed sense that God loves them and embraces them. And there's nothing they can do to have him turn against them and they can live out of that truth. So that's kind of how we started. And we have, we've had conferences online um, that didn't really start until COVID a couple years ago. Uh, because we prefer doing it in person. Uh, there's really, I love tech and all that. It's been wonderful, but it's not the same as seeing somebody face to face and being able to sit down and have a coffee or a beer or whatever you're going to drink and, and talk. And um, so we do it both in person and we do it online. And that's kind of the gist of what we're doing. We have a conference scheduled in person in Portland, Oregon, in July, uh, this July, July 8th through 10th. And we're working on doing one online in the fall, which, you know, obviously people could come to from wherever you are because it doesn't require physical presence. And so that, uh, that's what you're after. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's the, what's the website to find the website, out information? Yeah, the website is opentableconference.com. Okay. Um, now you also do the Northwest School of Theology. Yeah. And it, it, the way that fits in the story, I actually started that uh, earlier. I started that in 2007. And that really was um, uh, for a long time, Dave, I worked, uh, I taught in college and in the church that I was a part of uh, for almost three decades, I volunteered as kind of like the leader of the college singles group for a long, long time, probably 15 years. And I always struggled with the idea of young people going to school who wanted to grow deeper in their, in their life and in, in their relationship with God. And we basically had one option, like go to Bible college. <laughs> and there were, I mean, there were a couple of places you could say, well, you go here for a year before you go and finish your, your regular degree, quote unquote, do for your job that you want to do, whatever your vocation you want to be. And I just felt like that was, you know, the solution for people wasn't to send them off to an institution. So long story short, over several years of time, just this idea came kind of gelled and came together of doing a week long intensive 
where we would bring in different writers, speakers, pastors, leaders, counselors, um, and they'd come in for a couple of days and speak about whatever they wanted to a small group of people where they'd have the opportunity to process what they're learning, not only individually or with the teachers, but with each other in, in a group. And so that started in, in uh, the first one we did was in 2007. And it was out of that in 2012 that we said, you know, this is, this is uh, 20 people at a time and it's kind of like a fire hose. How do we help people even just initiate having this conversation? That's where we came up with the idea of the open table, kind of a weekend where you introduce people to some of these, some of these thoughts and questions and, you know, initiate that conversation. So those are week long, sort of like a week long intensive. Yes. Yes. And are, those are there held there in Portland. Uh, actually, most of them have been held in central Oregon which is about three hours from Portland. Uh, we go to a place there and rent houses and do it there. We have also done it at different places uh, around the country because it's logistically, it's something that we can do because we're not talking about hundreds of people involved. It's just uh, 20 or 30 people involved. So, Well, it's interesting to me that in, in my journey, as I have you know, progressed and wrote my book and then started the podcast, I wanted to interview a lot of these people that had been important to me. And it was really neat. It's really neat for me because I don't know, almost three quarters of the people that you had at the open table conference, I had already interviewed mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, rapidly contacting the rest of them. Again, <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't really know. I didn't know your work. I just knew that you were the convener of it. And then I found your book and I read your book and I just thought it was a beautiful, beautiful exposition of the Trinitarian love of God. And the theology just flows. Once you get that vision, the, the theology that flows out of it is just so natural and so, and so beautiful. And, uh, I thought you really, really did a good job in the book and it was filled with um it was nice because it wasn't coming like you said it wasn't coming from somebody who's like okay i'm obviously been right i'm obviously right about everything i've always been obviously right about everything and so now here's just something else that i'm right about let me just try to explain it to you it was such a different feeling than that it was like you know it it just felt like it came out of a place of deep humility and thankfulness and just trying to share the best of what you've experienced with with all of us thank you thank you i i really appreciate that i because i certainly grew tired of those kind of books that are telling me you know the next thing i'm supposed to believe and i tried to write this from a position of uh of grace and space and humility um so i'm glad that that came across that's wonderful thank you well i i i highly i highly recommend it i give it i give it a blue ribbon no, I don't, gosh. you know, John, that's, that's a pretty wonderful assessment for me. I don't give blue ribbons to a lot of, a lot of theology that I read, but I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I read it very quickly and it was, it was, a, it was, it, it was informative. It was, it was, I don't want to say it like, it, this might sound oddly emotional, hmm. you know, cause a lot of times when I'm reading a theology book, I'm in the, do I agree or disagree mode? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm sure, kind sure. of in that. If if we took those uh, ENTJ or whatever those uh, 
personality assessments, you know, I'm very judgy when it comes. I'm, I'm very, I get very analytical when I'm trying to, I'm looking for certain things in theology, but it, it was, I had problems reading yours because I kept getting caught up in the story. Mm. <laughs> so I, yeah. I just found myself kind of exiting analytical stage and just kind of being in the boat in the journey with you as you were going through all of your yeah. confessions. and. Oh, that's awesome. Because Dave, I, I'm a lot like that. I, I, I try to put a positive spin on it and, and I would say I'm critiquing. Like, no, you're not, John. No, you're not, John. You're judging. So stop it. So, but, um, but the, you know, honestly, if, if the way I told the story helped, uh, you know, as Lewis said, get behind your watchful dragons so that you could just engage it as another human being, that that's, that's wonderful. That's awesome. Well, you, you succeeded. My, my book is not that way. It's not that way. I, oh, it's not matter of fact. Well, I, I, stu I stuffed my story at the very end in there, kind of, you know, like, okay, well, if you care about that, it's at the very end if you want to look at it. But you you just took us along in that narrative in just a beautiful, humble, humble way. And um, the theology, it's neat because it's like you're, well, you do the nature photography. To me, mm -hmm. it's like you're going in this valley and it's kind of dark and foreboding, but you start seeing hints of, you know, light and a better path and you just keep going and keep going. And then finally you get to this vista that is so incredibly breathtaking that it, and it's so inspiring that you, it, it evokes faith. I, I think that that's what I've started to think is that, is that grace evokes faith that, that once we get this image, once we see then we behold it and we are transformed in the seeing we it evokes faith in us and you did really well at it was the the beautiful picture of the trinitarian the way you described the beautiful picture of the trinitarian god there you think i want to be in the middle you think i want to be in the middle of that but mm. then what you realize is the revelation is you already are that's and that's good news. Beautiful. And that's gospel. I remember also when I, I'll, I'll try to wind this up, but I get pretty excited. Okay. So okay. When, I, when I learned that gospel, euangelion in the Greek, what that was, was there would be a battle somewhere. And if the battle was won, somebody would run back and give people the good news that the battle had been won. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is gospel. This is good news that the victory has been won. And the victory is, in, and if you think and begin to believe that the victory is for all of creation and that, that it was, it is finished already in a sense, but in a sense, it's not finished until all of us are able to wake up and to respond to it and experience it together in faith. But if you're, if you're living in the reality and the expectation, you can live that kind of life right now with this expectation that you're heading into this glorious future. And once you get that, it's just hard not to tell other people about it. You just, you know, you just see, and it, I just can't even like, I live in the Ozarks. And so I'm constantly surrounded by beauty in nature. But once you get this vision, and if you're a nature photographer, I don't know how you can even stand it sometimes, just the beauty of creation itself. Plus, if you believe that what you're seeing is not just beautiful, but it's a God, a, another way of God revealing beauty to you. And this whole idea of beauty is really important. And 
anyway. <laughs> I just love how that all works together. It, yeah, it it does. It, it really does. I, I just I feel like beauty is just an, a never ending invitation. It's the way. It's one of the ways that God is constantly calling to us. Because name name a human being that's not attracted to beauty. We may we may differ on what we we think is beautiful, but we're all attracted to beauty. Yeah, and I just I just feel like God's in that. You know, another thing that became uh, interesting to me is the way that I look at other people changes. So I don't look at other people as I'm trying, you know, they're out and I'm trying to get them in. Or I don't look at other people as simply collateral damage for a plan that went bad. Mm-hmm. So uh, it just, it, there's, there's some real freedom in that to be able to treat mm-hmm. people in their Imago day. Yeah. And somebody said to me one time that people in life will generally feel about you just about the same way that you feel about them. So I think that people can tell intuitively that you feel this about them. I think people, people could feel that about Jesus. They could feel intuitively that this person is with me. He see, he, this person is seeing me in a way that other people do not. That's good. good. I I think that's really, that's really great too. Well, thank you so much for being generous with your time. I just love the, uh, I love the open table, the conversation that you, that you have gotten going, I think is a, just a, just a beautiful thing. And I highly recommend, uh, I highly recommend your, your book. The title of the book again is a spiritual evolution, a spiritual evolution. And it's a beautiful spiritual evolution. I can testify to that. Thanks again for your time. And hopefully I'll talk to you later. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.